All right, here we go. Good deal. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Marine Fish Conservation Network's Waterside Chat. I'm Tom Sadler, the network's deputy director, and I'll be your host today. <clears throat> We've we designed these waterside chats to connect people with who with people who depend on healthy oceans and fisheries with issues that directly affect them and their communities. Of course, I'm delighted to welcome and introduce today's guest, my good friend, Linda Benkin. Linda, as many of you may know, has fished the waters off Alaska her entire life. She's also the executive director of the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association and proud to say the co-chair of the Marine Fish Conservation Network's Policy Council. I'll be talking with Linda today about her experience fishing in Alaska, her work with Alpha, and her thoughts on the impact of climate change and, and fisheries management and fishing communities. Just a little housekeeping here. If you have questions for Linda, please put them in the chat and we'll do our best to get them, get to them. This chat's also being recorded as you've heard and will be available on YouTube, Facebook, and our website as soon as we can get it ready. I'm looking forward to a great conversation, so let's get started. Welcome, Linda. Let's set the stage here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, yeah, and thank you. Thanks for having me, and great to see some familiar names and faces here and some new ones. Um, I guess I, I can't claim I've fished my entire life, uh, but at this point, it's most of my life. Um, I, I grew up on the East Coast and came to Alaska to find the wild places that I uh, loved and knew I wanted to live in Sitka, Alaska before I even got off the three-day ferry ride on the way up here um, and, you know, had a vague idea of earning money for college that summer by fishing and was fortunate after quite a few months of walking the docks to find a job and just um, was hooked on fishing and the fishing communities. So it's been a big part of my life at this point, first working as crew, then running my own boat, and now fishing with my, my family. Well, tell us a little bit about fishing with your family. <laughs> It's the best and the worst, of course. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let's let's have the best, but yeah. let's not forget the worst. All right, well, I'm yeah, sure we'd no. love to hear those juicy details. <laughs> yeah, so we we have two boys, my husband and I, and we started taking each of them. They're two years apart, but each of them when they were about six months old, and uh, I can tell you, fishing pregnant with a with a six month old on the boat was probably the worst. Um, I think I was eight months pregnant during when I find when we wrapped up our season. Uh, so that that was hard because you know you tend to get seasick, which is not a normal problem for me. But yeah, took a lot of the fun out of fishing. Um, but fishing with the kids, it, we used to joke if we did it enough, some part of it would be fun. Um, <laughs> it certainly got to be a lot more fun as they got older. Just you know, we're always so worried about one of them getting hurt, but they loved being on the ocean. They loved seeing all that you see every day out there. Um, we always had a 
tote full of water on deck and seaweed would go in it or, you know, a little fish would go in it for a little while to watch swim around or if jellyfish drifted by, you know, we'd scoop it with a net and put it in there. And so we had a seawater aquarium that got changed out every day that the kids were always curious about. Um, and as they got older, they, you know, started to be helpful as crew on the boat and, uh, now they're they're quite good at what they do out there. So it's been it's been fun to see them appreciate all that I love about being on the ocean. Um, they definitely understand what hard work means. They know what we do for a living. Whereas I think when I grew up, my father went off to work and I didn't really know what he did. Um, so yeah, that's been that's been a fun part of it. And and then to one of them now has gone off and worked in Bristol Bay last year. So just to see them start to branch out on their own um, in the fisheries is great to get that new perspective on it all. That's terrific. So so one has gone off to another boat? Yeah, actually he worked, yeah, he worked at a set net site. So he was on the beach. Um, uh -huh. And the other one's done some skiff fishing and plans to skiff fish by himself this summer a bit. So, yeah. Well, how does mama feel about that? I, I think it's great. They learn way more when they work on their own without us around to, uh, you know, pick up the pieces. So, gotcha. yeah. Gotcha. That's terrific. So um, you you mentioned you, you, you said you haven't been fishing all your life in Alaska. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Where did, where you grew up in that area or? No, I grew up in Connecticut um, uh -huh. and went to college up in New Hampshire, graduate school back in um, New Haven, but uh, grew up, my, my father loved to sail. So we spent as much time as he could pull off on the water. Um, not much time fishing, but uh, being on the water and always loved that. Where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to college at Dartmouth and I went oh. to graduate school at uh, Yale. Indeed. So my dad went to Dartmouth. So um, I have a, a great affection for that. Um, so you are have been recognized with multiple awards for your leadership and contribution to fisheries conservation, including, and I'm just going to read these off, the White House Sustainable Seafood Champion of Change Award in 2016, the Lowell Thomas Jr. Award for Outstanding Achievement in 2019, and most recently, the Heinz Award for the Environment in 2020. Tell us a little bit about what those uh, awards mean to you. Well, I should say, you know, above all, what they recognize is the work of the fishermen and the team of people that I work with at Alpha, I mean, I, you know, I end up getting the glory, but I do what I do because of the people I work with and that's other staff at Alpha, um, but also the fishermen I work with who are small scale community-based fishermen with a really deep commitment to keeping this resource healthy and making sure that we hand off to the next generation what we've been able to enjoy and um, you know support our families by by working on the ocean and, and depending on these fisheries. So it, really the recognition goes to them and I guess that's that's the main message of what those awards mean to me is it it's recognition that these fishermen do that work and that they really care about healthy oceans, healthy fisheries, 
healthy communities. It's it's part of their culture and it's part of big part of the economy of our of our coastal communities. I mean, Alaska commercial fishing is the largest private sector employer in a lot of our remote communities. It really is the one source of um, livelihood for people. So uh, it's important. It's important all around the country. And it's maintained with a lot of work from the people who put their back to bringing fish, high quality seafood in for our country to enjoy, but also to making sure um, they're supporting that sustainability for the long haul. So um, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear you speak about um, the, the, the teamwork and, and the people that you work with, but that comes, you know, that comes because somebody was a leader there. And how has that, that those awards impacted the work you do? Has it been easier, harder? Do you feel like there's a level of, of achievement that you have to continue to achieve or, you know, help, help me a little under or help us understand a little bit about that? Yeah, I would say it's, it's just, it's been a big affirmation of the work. I mean, really our commitment's been to this triple bottom line of keeping the ocean healthy, keeping our small scale fisheries healthy, respecting um, the culture of fishing and the culture of these communities. Um, and it, it's, it, I think it's, it's definitely helped. It's, it's made it easier given that there's been this recognition that commercial fishermen, um, you know, these small scale fishermen are a big part of ocean health and can and can make a big contribution to maintaining the health of the ocean now, you know, be a big part of addressing climate change and how to keep the ocean healthy. It's not climate versus jobs. It's, you know, climate and jobs. We're not going to have these jobs. Um, you know, as someone said, there's no jobs on a broken planet. So yeah, it's, I think um, that recognition helps to give, to amplify the voice of the people that I work with. And that's been huge. Tom, I think you're on mute. I can make up. Sorry. An <laughs> Sorry. It's, you know, I'm technical, technically challenged on occasion. Um, so you were mentioning alpha. Tell me a little bit about how that got started. Um, you know, what do you focus on? So Alpha was started in 1978, um, so a couple of years after the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation Management Act was passed. Um, the, there were people in these communities who were still watching foreign boats operate off the coast of Alaska and wanting to develop local fisheries and market Alaska fish, um, increase the access for Alaska fisheries. So fishermen came together, started the organization, um, with that focus of creating a place uh, for Alaskans in the fisheries. And they were successful in doing that, successful in really promoting. So at that time, a number of the stocks off Southeast Alaska in particular had been overfished by foreign fleets. Rockfish stocks were in trouble, sablefish stocks were in trouble and um, pushing for conservation management to allow those stocks to rebuild. And they, they did. Um, and, you know, really to the benefit eventually of the domestic fleets that then stepped in to do the harvesting. So that, that was the 
background for Alpha. Um, when I took over, we were starting to see big impacts in this area from the domestic trawl fleet um, that wasn't fishing that focused off Southeast Alaska, but as they went through this area, they would you know, drop their nets to try a few toes to make sure everything worked before they went to the Bering Sea. And um, we would see the impacts of that, of um, what that had done as they came through here. So this part of Alaska has a very narrow um, slope area, relatively narrow shelf area, which makes it accessible for small boats, um, but also sort of compresses the fishing activity. There's also a higher abundance in this part of the Gulf of Alaska of deep water corals than in any other part of Alaska. And they're very slow going and fragile. So that gear type really um, created habitat, benthic habitat impacts and impacts to our local fisheries. And the year after I stepped in to take over Alpha, one of these trawlers coming through in a couple toes, took enough of a certain species or complex of rockfish to close down our local fishery for the entire year. And that was in uh, early winter um, and also to threaten our, our halibut fishery. So we launched an effort at that point to get this area closed to trawling as a gear type that just was not appropriate here. Um, and we secured an emergency action. We were not successful for another five years with um, turning that into a permanent ban on trawling in this area, but we were eventually successful. And at the time it was the largest trawl closure um, anywhere in the world. So that was a, a big success for us. Um, we then really focused as a group on what we do to improve our own stewardship as fishermen of this area and launched a fishery conservation network that, include, that involves our fishermen in research um, to address conservation issues or management issues that either the managers or the scientists or our fishermen identify as a challenge. And um, we've tackled a number of pretty complex issues and uh, with fishermen working together or fishermen collaborating with scientists have really um, been successful in improving best fishing practices in our own fleet and taking care of the resource. Here. So that, that's a big part of what we do and I'd be happy to talk about those a little bit more. And then I would say the other, another big focus for us along with policy research is supporting next generation of fishermen, recognizing that we're seeing real graying of the fleet and um, developing some programs to, to support young fishermen and their access to the resource and their success in fisheries. Well, I, I want to promise the audience that we will get to climate change, but I do want to take a moment because I think what you just said about future fishermen, um, you know, we're looking downrange and, and the whole impact of climate change is going to have an impact on those young fishermen. So can, can you talk a little bit about the young fishermen development work that you're doing? Especially sure. since you've got two young fishermen of your own. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so we uh, have a number of young fishermen's pr programs and we work with a host of partners to make those possible. So we started a, a fisheries trust um, called the Alaska Sustainable Fisheries Trust. The Rasmussen Foundation's a 
partner in that. And the Nature Conservancy's a partner a group called Catch Invest has been supportive of those efforts as well. But we provide um, low cost, low interest loans, low risk loans, I should say, to fishermen, to young fishermen who are just getting started where the trust shares the risk with those fishermen rather than them having to pay a fixed loan payment, they pay based on what they make from fishing. So for example, when COVID hit, the prices dropped by 60%, well, their payments dropped by 60%. Um, the trust is, is picking up some of that risk. We have a quarter share program in place in a number of our fisheries, as some people may know. So the cost of entry is quite high. Um, so we help people that way. We help them through some mentoring, um, connecting them through different events and different trainings with established fishermen who can help um, guide them through the maze of being successful in fisheries. We run um, what we call our, our fishermen expos twice a year where we tackle issues that either support sector people or fishermen or managers identify as issues that fishermen need to know more about, fishermen want to know more about. Um, and it can either be innovation in gear. Uh, we've done ones on how to do a better job of taking care of your hydraulics um, on and off the water. Uh, after I had a bookkeeper come to me and say, if one more fisherman walks into my office with a garbage can full of receipts or a garbage bag full of receipts, I'm going to scream. So we did one on bookkeeping, you know, and how to stay out of trouble with the IRS um, for fishermen. Awesome. So a host of, of topics just to help with, always with a, a focus if, you know, the, for people who are getting started as well as um, what's relevant to people who have been in for a while. Um, and training people on how to best use some of the new electronics that are out there, seafloor mapping, and how to make sure you're using that technology to minimize habitat impacts while also controlling bycatch rates and maximizing harvest. Um, so those, and then the other big young fishermen program we run is a crew apprentice program. We had a sort of growing number of of uh, skippers say they were having trouble finding crew. We would hear from people that they, they wanted to try out commercial fishing. They didn't really know how to get started or um, how to make sure they would be safe if they went out on a boat for the first time. So working with one of our fishermen who has a long history as an educator, um, we, we started placing young people going out on his boat, working as a crew, you know, that they, they we, we gave them some preparation before they went out. We helped them through a safety training. Um, we trained the host skippers to really understand that the focus has to be on learning, on being patient. Um, but this one skipper, he had all that down. He loves working with young people. He loves the ocean. He takes very good care of the fish he catches, and he's deeply committed to conservation and stewardship. So he was a natural fit and we, we got him started with taking people, young people out. Um, pretty soon we had more young people wanting and old wanting to go crew on his boat than, than he could manage. So we expanded the program, started training more skippers. We're careful about who we select to be a host skipper. Um, and we're just reopening the um, application period next week for the, for the crew apprentice program this year. So encouraging people who want to try commercial fishing, we, we'd like to build up a pool of, of professional crew, so willing to work for a full season, 
but we also try to accommodate people who maybe can only fish for a month or for a couple of weeks to give them a chance to get out and fill in where someone might need an extra crew or be shorthanded for a while. Um, so, oh, yeah, oh, I wish I was young enough to do stuff like that again. <laughs> I would have, I'd, I'd be up there in a heartbeat. Um, so, uh, climate change. So, um, it has been said that Alaska and the and the and that fishery are ground zero for climate change. Do you think that's true? Uh, yes, I think we're not the only place that's ground zero, but we are certainly seeing huge impacts. Um, of climate change here in Alaska. Why do you think that is? Well, Alaska is warming twice as fast uh, in the, the sea surface temperatures as the global average. Um, you know, we're, we're at the poles and the change is happening more quickly because um, our ocean's productivity relies to such a degree on the cold water, on sea ice coverage, um, and as that sea ice is melting, as permafrost is melting, um, as these events are occurring, such as the warm blob we had some years ago, uh, that the impacts are just tremendous throughout the ecosystem. Um, likewise, with ocean acidification and the impact that it's having on waters that were already sort of naturally acidic, small changes make big differences. So um, yeah, we're seeing, huge impacts and their impacts at the level of, you know, our, our crab fisheries, our Bering Sea crab fisheries that everybody knows from deadliest catch um, have been closed this year um, with a, you know, an economic impact of $200 million to the, to the crab fishery. Um, and that's, I mean, that, you know, that's devastating to people, to families, um, to the industry but also seeing just really painful uh, impacts of, you know, big die-offs of seabirds, strandings of marine mammals, um, huge impacts on the culture of people here in Alaska. Subsistence is so important. Talk a little bit more about that. About subsistence? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I so many- I don't think people naturally equate that. So it'd be interesting um, to hear more on that indigenous aspect of it. Yeah, well, Alaska has a long history of dependence of people, you know, time immemorial, tribal people have lived along our coast, indigenous people have depended on local resources. Um, Southeast Alaska, the estimate is that pre-colonialism, there was as many people living here as there is now, but people supported themselves from the resources that are here. There weren't barges and planes and, you know, bringing in food. Sure. So it's a rich place, but that's what has fed people and sheltered people and um, allowed people to have adequate uh, free time to be creative and have a beautiful culture of art and carving and weaving. And um, so, yeah, we're seeing a lot of those subsistence resources all around Alaska. I'm most familiar with the coast, but certainly also in the interior where we're seeing big declines in subsistence resources, changes, big changes in the distribution of species that make it more difficult for people to access those traditional resources. Terrific. Um, so 
clearly you've been involved in the climate cha- change aspects here in, in or up there in Alaska, not here in the, my frozen tundra. Um, <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, have you, have you been able to do involvement? I mean, one of the awards um, that you got was a champion for change award. I know that was climate related, or I think that was climate re- related, correct? And, and so talk a little bit about how you've done that nationally. Well, we work with a number of coalitions, including the Marine Fish Conservation Network. Um, that's bringing people together to raise awareness of, of climate change. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the other organizations recently started one, Businesses for Conservation and Climate Action, is is bringing together the businesses, including indigenous and tribal businesses that are working in ways that are supporting regenerative agriculture, restorative farming, sustainable fisheries, um, and recognizing that there are businesses out there that are sustainable, that are working within the limits of the climate within the limits of our planet rather than undermining it and that we need to shift our all our practices that direction um so definitely working at the national level on those building those kind of coalitions our group has supported um the work of citizens climate lobby and putting the need to put a a fee and dividend kind of program in place and really shift our economy in a more positive direction through that um, supporting nature-based climate solutions, the 30 by 30 initiative in a way that defines conservation to include those businesses that are sustaining the health of the resources on which they depend. Um, and lots of outreach to help people understand that it's not, I think, as I said earlier, it's not the climate or jobs, it's the climate and jobs that they go together, they have to go together for us to change the trajectory that we're on. That's a great way to put it, climate and jobs. That's, uh, that's right on. Um, so you've been doing this a while. I, you know, I consider you one of the early adopters of the, it, the challenges of climate change. Um, what do you think some of the biggest impediments um, are that are keeping people from responding to, to climate change? I think unfortunately in this country, uh, climate change became somehow a political issue. Um, and the, you know, the impacts of climate don't care about what party you're affiliated with. Um, it's undermining the productivity, the health of our ocean. It's certainly affecting um, places and people differently uh, and in ways that can be very inequitable in its impacts. But nevertheless, it, you know, the, the entire population of this planet from species, you know, birds through humans, everybody is affected. And I think um, as some of these impacts become more real to people, whether it's wildfires or rising sea level or just more extreme weather or seeing a crab stock collapse that supported your industry. Um, 
people are starting to recognize you can't just put it in a box and say that's somebody else's problem and someone else's construct that um, we've got to get past that politicizing of the issue and start to pull together on some significant changes. So how would you tell someone how to get past the politicization of this, the issue? I mean, I the administration or Congress or how, what would you tell them? What we try to do is bring diverse voices to the conversation and say, you know, we're, we're fishermen, we're, we're working people, we're not, you know, environmentalists as they're usually branded. Um, but our livelihood depends on addressing these climate issues, the warming water, the warming um, air is having an immediate and direct effect on our ability to make a living, to feed our families, to provide this high quality seafood that we've traditionally harvested to people across the country and around the world. So yeah, it's, it's bringing new voices to the conversation and voices that cross those political boundaries um, and trying to get people to listen to real stories. Sometimes I think it takes, if it's just numbers, if it's just abstract, it's harder to connect with people. If it's someone telling their story of what they've see, seen change in the ocean um, over the last 10 years, over their lifetime, it starts to hit in a different way. Um, so that's what we've been trying to do. I'm also part now of the National Climate Assessment, the Alaska chapter. So that's a big focus of our chapter this year is how do we bring the message home to people in a way through story and through human um, impact. Do you think that, I mean, I love the, obviously uh, as a journalist, I love the storytelling aspect of that. Do you, do you feel like that's making, getting you some traction? I, I think so. I'm not sure it's getting a, enough traction fast enough yet. <laughs> um, there's, you know, the, the climate is changing so fast and um, we're not keeping up with our policy changes. Uh, it definitely needs to start happening more quickly. Um, so yeah, just, I guess, a, a challenge to all of us to pick it up and recognize it has to be our highest priority. Um. So what, adv what advice would you give the administration right now? If you could, if you could sit down with the, the climate gurus, and I'm not gonna name names, we won't embarrass anybody, but I mean, if you could sit down in a room and say, okay, here's the three things I think the administration would do, what would be on Linda Benkin's wish list? Well, I would, you know, I really think there needs to be a fee and dividend program put in place. I don't know how politically palatable that is. That's above my pay grade, but I see that as the absolute fundamental change. I think the other um, action that, you know, I see starting to happen, and I see someone has asked the question in the chat, is this people coming together around the country to suggest nature-based climate solutions in different places, that this area matters to me. I think if you conserve this area in this way, it helps us address climate change while still supporting local economies, respecting um, environmental and social justice. Let's let's do that in a big way. You know, the the this area that's been suggested in the Bering Sea around the Pribilof Islands. 
um, as a perfect example of the people who live there leading and saying, we want to be part of a co-management of this area, make sure that all these resources are healthy in the future. So big shout out to um, St. Paul and St. George and the Pribilofs for leading that, the, the Aleut um, tribe there. Southeast Alaska is another perfect example. So people have put so much work into to taking care of the Tungus forest to make sure that forest ecosystem is intact in the future, to protecting, as I, I think I talked about this from a, a fishing gear type that we saw as incompatible with the health of the resource with the Southeast trawl closure. We have another perfect, you know, 30 by 30 conservation area here off of Southeast. And I think as the administration finds allies in places that maybe are um, new voices to bring to the table and helps to recognize and elevate that, um, you start to get different people to pay attention and to pay attention in a new way. And again, to recognize that how urgent it is to take action, but also that this is everybody, this is not, you know, the, the trade-off, um, but this is what it takes to have a healthy planet and a healthy country and a thriving economy um, as we move forward. You are an interviewer's dream, Linda, because you were you able were able to knock off two questions from the chat in one <laughs> response, and that's that's terrific. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I that's just that's just too, super. Um, so I had you talk about the administration. What would you tell Congress? Well, Congress, yeah, so, you know how how we get Congress to put aside the partisan politics and recognize that this country needs leadership um, that's more focused on taking care of the future of the country and less on partisan success. Um, that's what I, that would be my plea to them. I mean, no one, Republicans don't win, Democrats don't win if we can't do something about climate change. And really we have to do it and do it soon. Um, that's where a lot of this change can happen with um, a fee and dividend approach to um, pricing carbon and um, where we can find support for these locally led initiatives um, to secure conservation, recognizing that conservation isn't how we used to think of it, that we set aside this place and continue to do what we were doing over here. Climate change trans transcends all boundaries and we have to just change how we live, how we work, how we inhabit this place on a broader scale. And that's what I would, would ask them to, to look at and to support and to help de us develop solutions that, that operate at that level. Awesome. So one more uh, question in the chat. You want to take a look? Can you can you take a look at it? We want me to read it for you. Uh, reading it now. Yeah, that is the question for those who can't see it, but the question of shifting stocks um, and how we start to respond to that and and to respond to the impacts that it has on on fishing communities and on small scale fishermen that are less mobile um, than the, the bigger fleets and certainly than what our fisher, fisheries are right now or fish are, um, but it's gonna be really important for managers to work with communities and work with fishermen 
um, to start to design management systems that are flexible to those shifts and that get out ahead of a shift so that we don't have situations where fish are in an area, um, but there isn't a management system to conserve them and make sure that the impacts to them are sustainable. So there's certainly a need for a new look at, at fisheries management, one that's more flexible, one that's more adaptive, um, and one that holds place for these community-based fisheries um, and the historic connection they've had to these resources. Excellent, excellent. So I, I realize people who weren't participating aren't gonna know what the question was. So that first question was about shifting stocks and there's a follow-up, which I will read so we have it in the, in the video. Um, how are the shifting stocks, how are the shifting these stocks affecting the livelihood of fishermen in their communities? Yeah, that's, I think, um, very graphically illustrated in Alaska. So, you know, the Yukon River, huge river system with historically a tremendous run of salmon that sustained um, through subsistence the indigenous people since time immemorial. We saw, you know, we've over time this, this loss of return of salmon to that river. Um, both first commercial fisheries and now subsistence fisheries impacted. Um, meanwhile, there's you know record runs of salmon returning to Bristol Bay in Alaska. So those fish are shifting to new places as they try to find um, you know food and a, a way to survive this changing climate. And certainly, it's not just a matter of fish shifting, we're seeing a reduced productivity and lower survival of salmon in stream where the water's too warm. Um, so it isn't just a shift, it's a, it's a shift and a, and a reduction in productivity. Um, but yeah, just it's not um, for the people of the Yukon, it's a loss of their economy. It's also their culture is so tied to salmon, to the harvesting and processing of salmon um, that it's also a threat to their culture. Um, so yeah, big impacts and big impacts that management needs to grapple with. And uh, you know, a lot of it's climate change. Um, certainly those fish are also taken in some numbers and other fisheries is bycatch. So managers need to grapple with that and how we balance um, bycatch versus these you know, cultural connections and long-term subsistence dependence on a resource. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to take too much more of your time. But if did you want to speak for a minute or two on the bycatch issue? <laughs> yeah, I mean, bycatch has been a big one in Alaska, and I think historically, managers and I'm sure around the around the coast, but historically, managers have, um, you know, estimated what bycatch needs are and taken that amount of fish off the top. So bycatch being what's taken incidental to the operation or target of another, another fishery and taking that off the top before allowing for a directed fishery to make sure we don't over harvest. And I think in a time of plenty that worked okay, but when there isn't enough anymore to support that directed fishery or when the people who rely on that directed fishery um, are watching their livelihoods and their culture crumble, uh, we need to take a, another look at that and start to prioritize 
a different approach and to redefine what it means to reduce bycatch the extent practicable as it's um, included as a national standard in the Magnuson Act. Um, and really push for you know what what kind of fisheries are sustainable, um, and how we make sure that we're respecting cultural and economic and social connections of people in directed fisheries, historic directed fisheries to these resources. Well, you, you did a terrific job of melding the two from um, of, of climate and bycatch together. Um, there's there's one more question. Let me let me get to that. Then I'll, I've got one final question, and I'll take us out if you're still good time wise. All right. So through yeah okay through Alpha's cooperative research program, are you currently working on an, an initiative that helps fishermen to better understand and adapt to climate change impacts? Yeah, I would say so. Our fishery conservation network. Um, we worked with fishermen to identify their own bycatch hotspots and share that information across our fleet so people can avoid those areas where, in our case, it's concerned about rockfish. Rockfish can live to be 120 years old. Um, and so, you know, if you overfish them, they may not recover, but certainly it's a long timeline to recover. So making sure our fishermen know those areas, again, this is a mentor opportunity to make sure a young fisherman doesn't have to blunder into a lot of rockfish before he figures out what areas to avoid. Um, we've helped our fishermen get set up with a um, Noble Tech Time Zero technology to create their own bathymetric maps of the seafloor. We gather their data from them and compile it and give it back to them um, so that they have the ability, the, the benefit of having data from this whole fleet of boats operating rather than just what they might um, accumulate in their lifetime. So now our fishermen have the most detailed maps of the seafloor of anyone in the Gulf. And we actually share those back now to the scientists for to help inform their survey process. Um, so those tools really have helped our fishermen to fish cleaner, to lower their impact on habitat. Um, we continue to work with them to say, you know, as you start to see change, um, all these tools are going to get that much more important. Um, and in making sure we're keeping this habitat and these fisheries healthy and controlling bycatch rates, particularly if we start to see shifts in species composition, um, so I think those tools are helping them. We didn't design them initially to work with a climate change um, framework, but they'll help them as we move ahead. And then uh, the other work that we're doing with our fishermen is documenting some of the changes that they are seeing on the ocean and trying to um, bring that kind of information and that perspective into our sea bank report, for example, that captures the value of this resource captures that how climate change is impacting the resource and impacting the ability of the resource, both land, land and in water, to support the livelihoods of the people that live here. So again, that sort of you know the economic, the social that that all go together. Um, yeah, and then I would say you know the other way is involving our fishermen in policy work, promoting climate change action. Terrific. All right, so I'm going to take us out with one more question. Um, don't want to put you on the spot, but would you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist today? 
Oh, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely an optimist. I awesome. mean, I think it's hard to be a fisherman if you're not an optimist, right? Like you, you always have to know that the next trip's going to be even better, right? Um, and it just seems like there's so many challenges that fishermen face right now that our planet faces, our country faces, um, to, to, to maintain the faith that we're going to do the right thing and uh, take care of this incredible place we live in. Um, I think you have to be an optimist and just keep on working towards that, that optimistic goal of a better future for your kids. Well, that, that smile on your face was it was a dead giveaway, a big tell that, that you are an optimist. Thank you, Linda. I really appreciate your time and sharing and, and all the experience and knowledge that you've got and sharing it with us. I'm, I'm hopeful we can get you on for another Waterside chat. Um, we're working on our, for everybody, uh, we're working on our next uh, Waterside chat, which should be in March. And um, we'll put some information about Linda and her uh, organizations in, in, in the, uh, I guess they call them the show notes. And um, until then, I want to thank you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, everybody.